I noticed in my garden this morning a lizard on a leaf and wondered if he knew any more about why he was here <laughs> than I about why I'm here. And I don't just mean at the Women's Institute, although it's a biannual uh, relationship where I come in the fall and the spring and uh, muse, be muse and amuse. I chose as my topic this uh, sense of the two worlds that we live in. I suspect we live in hundreds of thousands of worlds, but the two worlds that we live in are the visible and the invisible and their interesting interaction, their interdependence, their opposition, their polarity, and what kind of dynamic that that set up for us in terms of our own evolution or our dissolution. I want to, as I do with, as we must with most concepts, uh, build a sort of a roux in order that we can make a gumbo. As the saying goes, what you don't know won't hurt you is actually heresy in terms of psychology. <clears throat> the motivating aspect of the human experience is invisible, that is, the unconscious. Uh, sages uh, <clears throat> have known from time immemorial of the unconscious. Freud, uh, Adler, and Jung did the pioneer work in the 19th and early 20th century of developing a concept of the unconscious. Uh, as most of you know, I am a Jungian analyst, which is the popular name for an analytical psychologist. My diploma says analytical psychology. It doesn't say Jungian analyst. I think we're to be distinguished from the Freudian analyst, but in so many ways we're indistinguishable because Jung was a student of Freud's, and Jung uh, was greatly influenced, and his theories were standing on the shoulders of Freud. They had a break over a problem of authority, which is for another lecture at another time. But it was Freud who began to write about the fact that certain things that happen to us developmentally that either don't have enough energy to remain in consciousness or have so much energy that consciousness rejects them, it's called suppression or repression, that those things don't go away, that they stay within the human psyche. Psyche is defined as all those things about us. It's not flesh, blood, bone, or hair. The psyche is that invisible part of the human being. It's uh, a pretty standard and accepted concept of the human being by now. In addition to the unconscious, which <clears throat> Freud felt basically was what he called a scrap heap of repression, uh, Jung felt that the unconscious, in addition to that, was a wellspring of creativity, that much of what came out in the human experience and human consciousness came from the unconscious, not just as repressed material, but as material that hadn't ripened, material that hadn't come into consciousness because consciousness was not, shall we say, mature enough to accept, uh, handle, or understand the contents. 
Further, he said, in addition to a personal unconscious, there is the collective unconscious. So he developed a sort of three-storied universe of the psyche. That is personal consciousness, personal unconscious, and the collective unconscious. The collective unconscious, uh, he posited, was that aspect of the human being that is deeply unconscious, way down on the instinctual primitive scale he likened uh, the collective unconscious as contrasted to a consciousness as the color spectrum. And down on the infrared side of the color spectrum is the collective unconscious, the contents of which are archetypes. Now this Wu-Rang building is very important because we're going to talk uh, eventually about symbol and myth and image. And we must understand that symbol and myth and image are the attempt of human consciousness to visualize or articulate the experience of archetypes. I've never seen a class of mine have so much fun. <laughs> <coughs> You're all absolutely mesmerized, obviously. <clears throat> this will become more confusing later. Archetypes uh, actually are what he called predisposed patterns of human behavior. They are to the psyche as instincts are to the soma. How does the baby know to suckle the breast? It's instinctual. Uh, the instinct to suckle the breast to receive uh, milk to satiate hunger is a similar instinct to have the experience of a mother. So we have nature, nurture, nursing, all part of the archetypal necessity for the child in order for the child to live, prosper, and evolve. So as milk is to the soma, nurture is to the psyche. And that is an instinctual need for a mother. And we all have it. It's the same for each of us, irrespective of gender, time of birth, place of birth, we each have exactly the same need. Now this is why at some level of sophistication we must have nothing but empathy for one another because we're the same. Your deepest longings, your desires, your necessities, your archetypal structure, your deepest level of the unconscious, those drives are exactly the same as mine. If we peel the onion back far enough, we see that we are one. That's not just mysticism. That's not just a metaphysical concept. That seems to me to be factual. It's one of the things that we seem to have forgotten is how we are connected and all things are connected. Jung said that the human psyche really is like a rhizome. All that under the earth root system that connects to all things underneath. So it is with the psyche, and that level of psyche is the collective unconscious where we're all connected. The dean of St. Paul's Cathedral in London uh, penned that some century ago when John Donne wrote, no one is an island. I'm a former dean of a cathedral, so I can edit other deans and bring, and bring them into political correctness. No one is an island. Uh, the highest level of development of spiritual consciousness presumes 
that we're all connected. The great contemplative Thomas Merton had what's known as his Louisville vision. He stood at the corner of Fourth and Walnut in Louisville, Kentucky, and looked out over a crowd on a street scene and declared, we're all one. You're all my brothers and sisters. We're all connected. Now, the reason I'm talking about that is because we are in the collective unconscious, that invisible structure that connects us all. And the contents of that individual, the indivisible, invisible structure is the archetypes. Archetype etymologically comes from uh, ancient imprint, archetype. Jung said that the archetypes are made up of eons of human experience. So somewhere between his thesis and poetry, he says every experience that every human being has ever had is in each of us. They've all contributed to us. We contain the collective experience of the evolving human race. So at that deepest uh, level of uh, the human psyche, the collective unconscious, we have developed within us those things that are necessary to fulfill the purpose of being human. Now there's great mystery about what it is that we're to do. Standing in my garden this morning, seeing the lizard on a leaf, wondering if he knew any more about what he was to do than I, about what I was to do, is reminiscent of you, some of you heard me say, I love so much Kurt Vonnegut's idea, that there were two pieces of yeast, and they were discussing the meaning of the universe, <laughs> not realizing at that very moment they were making champagne. God only knows what we're doing. I suspect that at one level we are doing something so far beyond our ability to comprehend that we only see it, shall we say, through a glass darkly. But I think it's of significance and therefore we are participating in something of significance therefore we have some sense about the human experience as being of substance and significance even though it is invisible or mysterious positing as we go a couple of things to remember mystery for Theology or spirituality means that which cannot be discovered. Mystery for science is that which has not yet been discovered. And some fundamental disagreement as to whether certain things will ever be known. That there is an unknown, there is an unknowable. And at that level is what creates such frustration and motivation for the human being. So thinking about some of the invisible, those archetypes that create for us an invisible world that affects the way we live in the visible world. And for most of us, most of the time, we're unaware of that. That our attitudes and behaviors and our motives are invisible. They're a part of us. They are 
as if we would see the chassis of an automobile and not realizing the thing that moves that automobile is not visible to us. So the unconscious, in a way, is like the engine in a metaphysical concept. It's sometimes called the mind, and the mind uses its brain for its computer. And so all of this invisible aspect of human being is what drives and motivates us. You don't call those aspects of the personal unconscious that contain our attitudes and behaviors complexes. He called them that because he felt that the psyche was made up of energy, just like there's energy in the universe. He didn't distinguish between kinetic energy, energy in the body, or energy in the psyche, psychic energy. It's all energy. And he said that the psyche is a closed system, meaning, of course, that when something changes in the psyche, when energy is displaced or moved, it doesn't dissipate or disappear it simply goes another place. So in a closed system, energy moves around and we are a relatively closed system. The reason that's important is because energy will coalesce around certain experiences and archetypes, and that's energy, and it is a complex of energy. That's the complexes. Let me do as I perhaps have done before in the presence of some of you, and if you find this redundant, then I suspect that it's time that you quit coming to my lectures. <laughs> if you find it <clears throat> enlightening, then I suspect it will be worth coming to my lecture. Here's the idea. We have this archetypal need for a mother, as I talked about earlier. So much so we're driven toward the experience of mother. And we're going to have an experience of mother. If we don't, we're not human beings. It is deep. It is strong. It is a most important motivation for the human experience. So we have an archetype called the mother. Now this is an archetypal concept or archetypal attitude or archetypal need or archetypal longing. It is for, as it were, the great mother. Nourishment, containment, security, safety, love, all of those nurturing, containing, relational, connecting, gestating, birthing principles of the great mother. That we each have to have that. The mother that is totally present for us to meet our every need. That would be the ideal or the great mother. It would be the archetypal mother. It would be, as it were, a goddess. Now, as I'm fond of saying, that's the ideal mother, that's the great mother, that's the archetypal mother. That's our drive. But each of us had a biological mother. We had this invisible need for a mother and a visible mother, a biological mother. Now, for most of us, she was just a post-adolescent neurotic young woman. As I'm fond of saying about my mother, God rest her soul, she was the seventh of seven children. She was in a symbiotic relationship with my grandmother because her father died when she was three. My father married her, took her off to northern Oklahoma. She had a two-year-old who was 22 years old when I was born. He traveled and left with the only car available during the World War II, and she was depressed. 
Now, so would I expect that poor 22-year-old post-adolescent neurotic woman to be the great mother? <laughs> she was my mother. Long ago, I granted her uh, forgiveness. <laughs> now, she was a good enough mother, as Bruno Bettelheim would describe. She was a good enough mother, but she wasn't the perfect mother. So that gap between the archetypal need for a mother and my experience of a mother leaves me looking the rest of my life for that which will fulfill the emptiness or the gap or the imperfection. It's a strong need. It's a strong human collective need for the mother. It's in the animal kingdom, you know, particularly with us mammals, primates. Those rhesus monkeys tried to make mothers out of those wire forms with towels on them. They clung to them. It's an archetypal instinctual need. And so it is with us. We'll make a mother out of anybody who will stand still and allow us to suck from them. We even try to make institutions into mothers. We used to talk about Ma Bell. <laughs> we refer to the university as alma mater, as if. And what about the church, mother church? Let me speak with some experience that the church cannot take care of us and be our mother. She is an institution made up of human beings looking for mothers. <laughs> My point to you in building this room is that so many of our attitudes and behaviors are developed very early and they create complexes and that's where our behavior and attitude emanates and most of us don't realize that most of the choices that we have made have been motivated by the invisible and we act them out in the visible world as if we know what we're doing. There is within the human being in the gender-specific archetypal structure a contrasexual archetype. Every woman has within her a man and every man has within him a woman. You'll use the masculine and feminine for soul, anima and animus to describe this contrasexual archetype in the collective unconscious of each human being. And in order to uh, fulfill the human need for completeness or wholeness, we must in some way experience the contrasexual archetype. In the same way that we project onto these uh, post-adolescent neurotic young women this archetypal need for oh mother, we do the same thing with other human beings and our archetypal need for the other. Women do it to men and men do it to women. And we project onto them expecting them to fulfill our archetypal need for the perfect man or the perfect woman. And having had some experience with a contrasexual archetype in our own being, the mother or the father, which sets up the beginning sense of our attitudes about the male or the female, we will seek out other males and females to uh, somehow fulfill that which was not fulfilled in our primary relationship with our first animal or animus experience. It's called falling in love. It's the only psychosis that's not in the DSM-4. 
I'm not cynical about falling in love, just experienced. <laughs> not, not only in my own case, but in the case of many who have come to me and are in an archetypal possession. They are projecting onto another human being. Once again, I'm building a rule to illustrate that so much of what we do in the world and choices that we make are motivated by invisible. That we live in two worlds at the same time at least, one visible and one invisible. And the great human seduction is the belief that the visible world is the only world. Now we're only talking about the unconscious, we're really not talking about metaphysics or cosmology in terms of the invisible, we're simply talking about one's own cosmos, that is the human psyche. And it's perhaps as complicated as the entire cosmos itself. And there is this theory that, that what's going on in the macroscope in terms of the cosmos is going on in the microscopic cellular structure of every human being. So that we are, we each are a universe and at the same time participating in something universal. Now this visible and invisible world is an interesting concept. What are the things that we would see in the psyche and world that is external and internal? Uh, June Singer, uh, who wrote several interesting books, uh, Boundaries of the Soul and uh, the Seeing into the Visible World, has listed some of the different characteristics of the visible world and the invisible world. These are the characteristics of the two worlds. In the visible world, we seek order and stability. In the invisible world, there seems to be chaos and flux. There's an interesting book, several years old now, by James Glick called Chaos in which he talks about the reality that there really is no such thing as chaos, it's just the inability to see it. That's where he posits the well-known butterfly principle that if a butterfly beats its wings in Beijing, it eventually becomes a thunderstorm in New York. But that poor chap walking down Fifth Avenue without his umbrella doesn't know <laughs> the relationship or connection between the butterfly beating its wings in Beijing becoming a thunderstorm on Fifth Avenue. It seems chaotic to him, or at least capricious. Matter and energy, earth and sky, form and formative, items, systems, goals, ends, pathways, processes. In the visible world, there's belief or disbelief. In the invisible world, there's a suspension of all belief. Visible world is places. Invisible world is contexts. Visible world is definite. Invisible world is indefinite. The visible world is finite. The invisible world is infinite. The visible world is static. The invisible world is dynamic. The visible world is spatial. The invisible world is non-local. In case you don't remember, non-local is a concept out of quantum physics where the idea is that energy can move from one place to another in a non-linear fashion so that energy can affect one in a non-local way. Now this, the quantum physicists didn't quite know it, but they were giving a definition of prayer. 
the very idea that I could influence you at a far distance and create energy for you through my presence in a non-local way. Um, religion and spirituality are two of the differences between the visible and invisible world. Knowledge and truth. Now, if we begin then to develop this sense that in order to be more complete or more aware or more conscious or more human, then we have to begin to develop a sense that we live in at least two worlds simultaneously. And that indeed these two worlds may contain opposites, not only of visible and invisible, but other opposites. For instance, fact and truth. We can, in one simple paragraph, define the difference between fundamentalism and spirituality. Fundamentalism has not yet discovered the difference between fact and truth. Spirituality is concerned about discovering meaning or numinosity or the transpersonal self or the source of the mystery of the universe or the transcendent. Spirituality is interested in experiencing those and that symbols and myths and images or icons are ways to experience the transcendent so that the sacred stories and the symbols, the sacred stories and the sacraments, the sacred stories and the symbolic images that come from the sacred stories are in order to have a conscious experience of the mystery. And that we don't have to apply the rules of the visible world to those stories. If you remember, that's what Joseph Campbell called the baby in the bathwater problem. That the bathwater is the context of the truth and the baby is the truth. And so if the bathwater, the context of the truth, the story, the sacred story, the creation story, the story of Jonah, uh, the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and those wonderful uh, mythological formulas and sacred stories, that they are the bathwater for the truth, which is the baby. And once the bathwater doesn't fit our scientific understanding of the world, we throw them out. And in so doing, we throw out the baby with the bathwater. And so it is that we learn, I think, in spirituality that, to know the difference between psychic truth and facts. As I have said many times publicly, I'm no longer interested in arguing about the virgin birth. Frederick Buechner says we ought to know the difference between gynecology and, and theology. It points to a truth. And bringing me the fact of prothnogenesis would not make it any more true. So it is with the visible and the invisible world. Those stories are about trying to experience the invisible in some visible context, some way to visualize, some way to envision some way to image. We know from iconography that the idea of the icon is to see through. It's a symbol that allows us to see past it to the truth to which it points. It's what the very word symbol means. 
to throw with. Sim means with. Ballon is the word for to throw, from which we get the word ball. So symbol means to throw with. So when we have something that's a symbol, we do not look at the visible, we look at the invisible. The symbol is pointing to that which we cannot see. It would be like the man pointing to the moon and we would confu be confused and look at his finger. It's to point beyond itself to that which you cannot see. That's the invisible and visible world of myth and symbol. How tragic it is that we would trivialize those sacred stories by trying to literalize them. So we have uh, the sense that there is a psyche and an unconscious, an invisible world that motivates us and drives us, and most of us, for most of our lives, have only a very superficial, very thin understanding of what drives us, of what makes us make the choices and decisions, our attitudes, our behaviors, our addictions, our neuroses. Jung said uh, neurotic means one split from oneself, meaning that these complexes are not conscious. They have personalities of their own. They have voices of their own. They have belief systems. They have attitudes. They're a roadshow of characters. And some of them are positive and some of them are negative. Some of these complexes create consistent behavior patterns that are very destructive for us. One of the definitions of neurosis is doing the same thing over again, expecting a different result. These complexes, if they remain in the unconscious, are tyrants. And they rule us, and we're not even aware of it. Psychoanalysis is about trying to get conscious of those aspects of the unconscious that drive us. These archetypes. A man came in my office and I said, so what brings you here? He says, there's somebody in me that doesn't like me. <laughs> So there is this very dynamic, very complicated, very chaotic aspect of the human psyche called the unconscious that is invisible. And that's a world. It's an inner world. And that inner world wants to enter into the outer world through consciousness in order to make a balance, in order to live an integrated life, in, in, in order to live a whole life rather than the life of one split from oneself. The unconscious wants to be known, wants to make itself known, so it importunes, it invades, it intersects the outer world. For most of us, it does so in negative experiences, for that's the only way that it gets our consciousness or our attention. When things go well, we don't seem to question very much. Tom Robbins in his book, Even the Cowgirls Get the Blues, wrote about a character who called into work well. <laughs> I think if we ever got well, the last thing we'd do is go to work. <laughs> I've, I've never had anybody call me and say, I'm feeling very, very well, just wanted you to know it. <laughs> Actually, if somebody came into my office and said, I'm well, I would get a medical consult for hospitalization. <laughs> the point being, of course, that this idea that, that uh, 
the unconscious comes into consciousness or importunes or interrupts us in order to get us to change or to grow or evolve or become, become more aware by creating conscious crisis, pain, painful event. So what's invisible invades the visible world in order to get us more conscious or more aware or more whole, more integrated, fuller, fulfilling. And so the accidents in analytical psychology, there are no accidents. Something has caused this. Something has created this in order to get us to change. It creates a conscious crisis. Most of the things that we have changed over or become more aware have come because of some crisis, some loss, some divorce, some destructive event. You do know that every creative change usually begins by a destructive act. Some mistake, some accident, some crisis, some loss. So we say that what you don't see is not what you get, and what you don't know will hurt you. There's an invisible world that seeks integration with the visible world. And it makes itself known if we have the eyes to see and the ears to hear. If we begin to see that there are no accidents, that everything has some potential meaning for us. Which is the third way to think about this invisible world. And we think about it in terms of the unconscious, we think about it in terms of teleology. Now teleology is the word in Greek for complete. It comes from teleos, T-E-L-E-O-S, teleos, and the word is teleology. So in the same way that the unconscious and religion or theology or spirituality is an addressing the invisible world through symbol and myth. Teleology is another way to think of the invisible world. The idea of teleology is that there's an archetypal drive in the human being toward wholeness or completeness which is, of course, to be contrasted to perfection. Perfection is not a goal, for it is not possible. Perfection is a, an illusion. Wholeness or completeness is the integration of the incomplete, is the integration of the mistake, is integration of the imperfection. So wholeness or completion presumes that Everything we've been, everything we've done, all of our choices, all of our mistakes, illnesses, accidents, traumas, tragedies, all of those contribute to making us who we are, to our fullness, our substance, our soul. Soul, once again, is invisible. It's a mystery. Whatever we mean by the word soul, it points to something very deep, something very substantial, something very mysterious, and something very personal. Soul. So teleology presumes that everything has within it every event, every accident, every illness, every situation and crisis and relationship, all the 
increase in vicissitude of life, all of those things mean something for us. And in order to grow or to change or to become or to evolve, we have to see what the meaning is. That visible act, that visible event, that visible occurrence has within it meaning that's invisible. And it's our job to find the meaning. How many things have to happen to you before something occurs to you? And part of the life's goal is to find the meaning in all of these aspects of the human experience. What does this mean? So we take a visible experience and look for the invisible. I think the fourth way to think about the two worlds of the visible world and the invisible world is to learn to live with paradox. Paradox means that two things can be true at once. Paradox means, more fully, that two opposites, there are two things that are opposites, both of which may be true. They're very difficult for us. Because consciousness, you see, one of the very important parts of consciousness and its central archetypal organ called the ego. The problem with consciousness is that it is a differentiating aspect of psyche. Uh, the ego develops around stimulation, gratification, and approval, and it has as its function uh, to locate us, to orient us, to be able to differentiate uh, among things and to have an identity. And it's just a differentiating function that's important to us. So we tell the differences between things. And so the very idea that something goes against what the ego knows in the world is very difficult because ego says that there are differences. This is good and this is evil. And that kind of splitting leaves off a very important part of the invisible world, and that is that many times two things can be true at once. And every one of those archetypal opposites dwell in each of us at all times. So paradox is the ability to hold opposites consciously. And the reason that's important is that we cannot integrate them unless we do so. And if we do not do so, then we are continually in this uh, anxiety-producing movement between polarities and the splitting dramatically of one aspect over the other, and we cannot integrate them. Jung had a concept known as the transcendent function. Transcendent, in this case, is not capital T, but small t, meaning that which transcends its previous state of being. So he says that we create or consciously become aware of these opposites. And that we're continually splitting one off because we can't stand the tension of two things being true at once. 
or we become polarized between the two opposites and this movement back and forth between them, realizing any time we're at the extreme of one opposite, we're inches from the other and it flips very quickly. I gave a lecture last week on the opposites of sentimentality and brutality, how close they are together, and how one pushes sentimentality too far and the next moment we're terribly brutal. Uh, that is, I love you so much that if you don't marry me, I'll kill you. Uh, that was the basis, really, of the Crusades, wasn't it? We wanted you to have this God of love and peace so much so that we're going to kill you if you don't accept it. Or the anti-abortionists that believe so much in life that it kills doctors. That sentimentality of extremism in a moment can flip to its opposite side. That's why highly sentimental religious people scare the hell out of me. The next moment, there's the brutality of shame and violence and exclusion. So, one of the aspects of the invisible-visible world is to try to hold those two paradoxes consciously in order to integrate them. So that we can make room for uh, one aspect within the other. If you remember uh, Blake's um, introduction to the poem Auguries of Innocence, where he writes to see a world in a grain of sand and heaven in a wildflower, to hold uh, infinity in the palm of your hand and eternity in an hour. That's the kind of seeing the visible and the invisible in the same place. To see that many things hold everything within them that there isn't this radical separation that consciousness seems to want to make with unconsciousness. There's not this radical differentiation that the ego seems to want to do to abet anxiety. In other words, we're terribly anxious when we know opposites. We tend to be less anxious when we think there is nothing opposite. There is no opposition. There is no polarity. Evidently in the unconscious or in the pre-conscious state, which is known as the Euroboros, the Euroboric state, really comes from that snake that eats its tail. That is, it is a self-contained unit, no opposites, total circle. Uh, when we become aware of the opposites, we become very anxious. That's what the sacred story tells us in the Hebrew creation myth. Uh, human beings were urged to consciousness and decided to take advantage of it, and God said, that'll be fine, but if you want to become conscious, watch out. You'll know the opposites of good and evil, and that will cause labor, it will cause pain, it will cause death. So being conscious causes for us great anxiety, because there are two things, and one of them has to be true. We have to split or differentiate. We can't stand the idea that both may be true, so we split them. We exclude. We take sides. That's why my mentor Robert Johnson says, feeling guilty means you've taken sides. But there were two things going on that caused that. That's why we have to think teleologically, and that is, yes, it was tragic. Of course it was horrible. What was going on? What does it mean? We must analyze it, not judge it. Judgment is the enemy of analysis. And judgment's what we rush to with our egocentricity. This was horrible and it was bad. That's a defense against facing the hard task of analyzing what was in it. So we judge it and dismiss it. 
Now, the idea of holding opposites consciously or paradox is what consciousness is about. It's what it means to become aware. And it means to, that we become aware that there's more going on than meets the eye and what we don't know can hurt us. There is this romantic visible and invisible world where we know that there is great mystery and God is working God's purposes out and things are going on that we cannot conceive of and there are aspects to the complexity and awe and majesty and awesomeness of God's created cosmos and universe and we understand that and we appreciate that in some religious uh, worshipful manner. But we also know that we have to take responsibility for the invisible part of our own very life, and that we have to be responsible for trying to be as conscious as we can as to all of the aspects that contribute to the complexity of life, yielding ultimately before the unknown and the ultimate mystery, but persevering into trying to be as conscious as we possibly can. So I looked at the lizard on a leaf in my garden this morning and wondered, does he have any more idea what he's doing here than I do about what I'm doing here? He didn't seem to be nearly as anxious as I. <laughs> His consciousness uh, seems to be in a different place. One of the things that it seems to me that we're here to do is to become conscious. It doesn't appear to be, from empirical evidence, something we do very well because it's so laborious, it's so painful, and in order to do it we must face finitude. And none of us really wants that. We don't like the anxiety of being conscious. The very thing we do when anxiety is more than we can stand is to get unconscious. We drug ourselves, alcohol, sedatives, we soothe ourselves with food or we sleep too much, trying to avoid the pain of being conscious. All the euphemisms for drug and alcohol abuse have to do with being unconscious. Stoned, interesting, huh? Human beings, particularly if we do infant observation, human beings don't seem to do consciousness very well. But it seems as though we're driven to it, that there's a, that's the one thing that we know we're supposed to do. And I think we have a moral obligation to become conscious. I mean, I think it's what we're doing here. I think in a poetic way that the cosmos is evolving toward its omega point and the ingredient of the evolution is human consciousness. I think that's a pretty awesome responsibility and moral obligation we have to become conscious of the visible, which seems to be fairly easy for us, but the invisible also. And um, the best we can do is maintain consciousness for 18 hours and then we have to go into the unconscious, back into the invisible world, in order to be renewed and nurtured by the reminder in the night that there's a whole other world, a whole other realm, 
where the rules are very different. It's called a dream, in which we can be somebody else, or we can fly, we can be another time in history, future or past, where we can solve problems that are insoluble in conscious life, where we can see things that we've never seen before and do things we've never done before, sing with perfect pitch, win the NCAA tournament, and we're renewed by those dreams that we find to be so invisible. And yet, I think we have an obligation to take them into the visible world with us and see what they say in that paradoxical way about what is real. Does it have to be visible and factual and tangible and material in order for us to say that it's real? The things to me that are most real are invisible, non-material, intangible. Things like love, hope, relationships. So they will have a visible component or a visible symbol that will point to the invisible truth. Like our bodies, they're visible, but they're only locating the invisible. And what you see here is not what you get. <laughs> so, let's wonder together about that lizard on the leaf. And surely you have questions that have been stimulated by this wondering about the visible and invisible and positing that there are three or four important aspects of what is not visible that make life worth living and meaningful and are our responsibilities. What occurs to you? What are you curious about? Yes, please. When you watch them when they say over and over again, yes. and you help well, hurting them uh, wouldn't be the word I would use. I would probably go to the recovery movement words like you are enabling them to continue. I mean, we found this in, in the recovery movement with Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon, and that is that if people are continuing to do the same behavior over and over again and it's destructive, that if we clean up after them, or if we continue to tolerate it, or make excuses for it, or stay in denial about it, that we are enabling them to continue. Therefore, in an unconscious way, we're colluding. So, yes. <laughs> we also, by that fact, talk in terms of the unanxious person being the person of acceptance. Well, um, I don't know exactly what you mean, but I'll make a response to what I heard. It seems to me that it is consciousness that is a requirement for acceptance. That one sort of sees the limits of one's uh, ability to understand the cognitive complexity. It is really ultimately a matter of faith to accept our limitation, uh, to accept our lack of control. That seems to me that comes not out of desperation, but comes out of consciousness for me. Is this what you're wondering about? Yeah. 
Yeah, I'm just thinking a lot of anxiety yeah. comes uh, in some ways not from being able to accept the opposite, right? But from one's inability to accept oneself. Yeah, yeah. Or the opposites within oneself. Yeah. 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 Well, it's an interesting question about where acceptance comes from, or where the satiation of anxiety is. Um, some of the words from piety uh, would be interesting words like serenity and peace and contentment, those kinds of words. It seems to me that those come from consciousness, not from unconsciousness in the sense of not being aware. Um, I think one of the human experiences of maturity um, it has several aspects of what we would call mature worldview. One is to realize that one isn't God. It takes a long time. Because one aspect of that is to yield to the illusion that we have any control. I'm fond of saying to people, now what is it that you're in control of? Um, and the other would be the limits of one's ability to understand. That there are some things beyond our comprehension and, and that would be, it seems to me, an acceptance through a conscious uh, understanding of our limitation. And, and th that would then free us to be content, and that is, uh, the wor word content means to find meaning in what you have, rather than what we don't have robbing us of meaning. Somebody else, yes. I'm sort of curious about how analytical psychologists look at not the individual but the collective. Mm -hmm. Are there analytical psychologists for the town, the city, the nation, internationally? I mean, it's sort of frightening to think that everything we think of as microcosm of the individual projected becomes society. Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I think most of us who are psychoanalysts wind up analyzing the collective, uh, both. Uh, leaders, national leaders, are, are wonderful targets for analysis, as is popular culture and uh, politics, uh, geopolitical structures. So I think most of us in most dinner parties wind up being psychoanalysts, don't we? Uh, we analyze our leaders and we analyze their motivations and we analyze the collective uh, aspect of the psyche that's going on. I don't know of anybody who holds the position of uh, of the collective analyzer. I think in a way it used to be the, one of the roles of the, of the clergy uh, and the purpose of the sermon was to try to analyze what's going on in culture. That's called a prophet. Analyze what's going on in culture and to say the hard truth even though it's unpopular and to point out the, uh, the illness of the collective. But uh, it's hard to do that and collect your church pension. So... <laughs> So most clergy don't do that. They simply uh, answer questions nobody's asking, and they <laughs> and they tell everybody how we're right and they're wrong. Part of my cynicism. Did you want? Did you want to? Yes, it seems keep to talking. That, you know, if, the, if the individual is responsible for healing himself through ask, uh, you know, through individual consciousness, yes. Yes. that all collectives must be a projection of the individuals yes. in that collective, yes. whether it's the size of the town or the size of the nation. Correct. And it's kind of daunting to think that there will be no progress nationally, internationally, 
whatever until each individual becomes more conscious. That's yeah. scary. You wrote a book. Uh, I'm actually, I'm not advertising this, but I'm just saying it sounds pretty contemporary. Young uh, wrote a book called The Undiscovered Self, in which he makes that very point. He says that, that until each individual takes responsibility for his own morality, and he's not now talking about that classic sense of morality, but the moral imperative to become conscious, then that's the way society is affected, rather from the other way of society trying to make individuals moral. So yes, and uh, you know, it's very interesting that I don't know who would uh, qualify to be the collective psychoanalyst. Uh, or the, if the collective would accept it. No, well, they kill them, I think. Yeah. Is <laughs> the prophets were never very popular, you know, they weren't invited home for dinner. We managed to cover it. Well, managed would not cover it. Yes, please. Uh, following yes, that, please. Uh, our technology has made knowledge, uh, even false knowledge, yes. information available all around the world. But our understanding, I'm more or less quoting Tom Friedman, yeah. is way beyond, and we seem not to be able to want to understand Yes. Yeah, does that yeah. fit in? Uh, yes, it does. Um, in the same way that the individual um, must learn from experience, the individual must grow, change, evolve through reflection upon experience. It doesn't seem that the collective does that very well. It's like we have the same patterns of behavior and over and over again expecting different results. Also, that there is when, um, you know, um, in spite of my lecture today, which would be the encouragement for the um, development of the human brain or the human mind, and we do have three brains, basically, the reptilian brain, the mammalian brain, and the human brain, and that's it's evolved forward into the frontal lobe, that, that two-thirds of us still is not very human in terms of our brain and mind. And we are pretty regressive in our reptilian uh, uh, territorialism. And uh, so when, when we're threatened, uh, we tend to regress rather than progress. And so rather than thinking of new ways to solve old problems, we go back to the old solutions. And they don't work. And so the idea of thinking outside the box we're coming up with new ways to solve human problems through communication, negotiation, compromise. I'll never forget Mr. Rogers, when my boys were little and watching that show with them, used to say to the children that compromise is the best way to solve problems. I thought that's pretty wise. That, now, you know, our collective doesn't seem to understand that very well. It's still compete, defeat, might, and right. Uh, and if you don't do it our way, we'll kill you. Yes, somebody else. <coughs> yes, please. I don't know whether you were... I was. Keep going, it will. Okay, okay. The professor and the student decided that you can see, you can make something visible in a way that's not, not real. Uh -huh. For example, they 
a, a room that's skewed, and you can yeah. you see it oscillating instead of turning around. Uh -huh. So that's the hypothesis of equivalent configuration. Yeah, I got it. Okay. So how does that relate to the, any kind of reality? Well, um, that, that's the part that you've made sort of my point in a, in a very short time. My compliments to you. It took me an hour. You did. Uh, <laughs> you did 54 seconds. <laughs> and that is that 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 the great seduction is the belief that what we see is true or or real. It's a very limited viewpoint. Consciousness is a very limited viewpoint. Consciousness is the tip of an iceberg. Even in what we think is accurate portrayal of reality, when it is an illusion that's been created that looks as if it's one thing, when in fact it's entirely another. I agree with that. And that's kind of the point of this lecture is that there are two worlds, the visible and invisible, and the visible world is not at all what it appears to be. I don't know what is real. I suspect in some ways that uh, that the things that we would consider to be unreal are, are, are operative reality. By that I mean operative. Um, doing dream analysis as a uh, psychoanalyst, people will say from time to time, well, I, I had this dream and uh, I dreamed of Sally Jones. Now in the real world, she's this. And I'll say, wait a minute. <laughs> What's the real world? This dream is a real world. This dream's a real world. Um, many of us have been transformed by the uh, dream world and informed and inspired. Uh, so I don't know what is real. Don't you have to have a certain class form of reality to live Yes, yes. We, have, we do have what we call a consensus, a consensus reality. But it's, that's all it is. It's a consensus reality. I don't know that it's real. It's an operative sort of normative standard. And, and it's, it's important we have it because it does evade anxiety and it allows civilization to uh, uh, continue. Our survival is dependent on a consensus reality. When we are ourselves not as well formed. I mean, you always hear, you know, youth is wasted on the young. Yes. I don't necessarily know if that's true or not, but I am so much more of a person now than I was when I was raising my children. I don't think like that's my own new house. Yeah, I know. Then, what I know now, yeah. it, it, it's even like Mother Nature is, I've never been a fan of. And <laughs> I just feel that this is sort of, it's not the way I would have judged. <laughs> I heard a lecturer. I heard a lecturer recently say one of the hallmarks of maturity is realizing I'm not God. <laughs> That's hard for all of us. I would have done it differently too, as I'm fond of saying. Uh, when I get in the near presence, there are several things I want to ask the Creator. <laughs> it must have looked good on paper, but it never worked. Like this male-female thing, you know. Um, 
Yeah, I think that, uh, I've said before, it sounds cynical, but I mean it to be hyperbolic and perhaps informative, that I am not currently doing anything I would have done had I known what I was doing when I chose to do it. <laughs> so that, uh, that naivete is a requirement for a lot of the things that are necessary. Um, on the other hand, uh, another way to look at that is we can hardly do that to ourselves because um, if Napoleon would have known what we know now, he wouldn't have gone to Waterloo, but he didn't know. And that's true for us too, that this limited knowledge, you know, we have, we have sort of limited freedom and limited knowledge and that tough combination. Yeah. Because <laughs> you hung a few bars? <laughs> yes, please. Are there various forms of meditation a way to bring the world? Yes. Uh, questions are there, there are thousands of ways to bring the invisible world into some um, way of visualizing it images and messages and visions and the Quakers call them seeing so meditation and prayer uh, act what you call active imagination uh, there are lots of ways to do it uh, the other way to bring unconscious contents into consciousness is to read which this American public doesn't seem to do much anymore I teach at the University of Houston and I teach in the Honors College they have very bright kids and they don't they're unable to write. And the reason they're unable to write is, you know why? They don't read. And they also, you know, their, their writing is, is heavily influenced by the computer to where they, um, they just write in sound bites. They don't really write in, uh, in ways that uh, allow us to visualize things. They just get the facts. It's an interesting response, but yes. 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 Would that, would you consider that a part of meditation? Yes, I would. Yeah. What, what, what is the objective? Well, the objective is to alter consciousness. See, consciousness as we as we understand it, and it's very complicated because there are two kinds of consciousness and ten thousand kinds of consciousness. Is it if for the neurosurgeon, consciousness means being not asleep? You know, wake him up. So he said, he's conscious. Well, that's not what I'm talking about. <laughs> okay? I'm talking about being aware or being fully conscious or whatever. And so within a day's experience, we go through altered states of consciousness all day. And the tradition of meditation, prayer, chanting, or the mantra, or the ritual process, really alters consciousness and many times allows consciousness to expand, ironically. Um, the other aspect of consciousness that was sort of beyond the scope of this lecture is what we call the ego defenses that, that are necessary in order for the ego or consciousness to evolve and survive. So we defend against the chaos of the unconscious or the confusion with these ego defenses, repression, suppression, denial, projection, idealization. We do all of those kinds of things to keep the threat of the unconscious or the confusion or the complexity or the anxiety away 
in order to grow or to, to uh, evolve. So putting the defenses down is what the mantra does, or it's what worship does, what going to church does. It's what meditation and prayer is. It alters consciousness in order to get a new thought or a new way to frame it or a, 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 some more information or inspiration. So, yeah. Also, you know, the daydream is no different for me than the night dream. I always think of me, but the little boy who's in the sixth grade on a spring afternoon staring out the window. I mean, he's solving all kinds of problems and making all kinds of plans and carrying out all kinds of fantasies. I mean, he's in the richest form, it seems to me, of, uh, of the educational process, and some teacher hits him over the head. You know, let him daydream. That's where the, that's where the idle time is where the, you know, the motor's running, but it's not in gear. So many things have come to us in those periods of reflection. It's a wonderful time. Yes. Do you have your hand up? No. Oh, good. You're just yeah. making the sign of the cross. Getting ready to <laughs> Yes. I have to risk of exposing myself as a fellow Christian. I, some of the things that you uh, say, you know, this bring up scripture after scripture, and yeah. it fits in line with what you're saying. You said, Hope is more of a reality, which is something that is not seen, than what we see. Yeah, Paul talks about the things unseen. Right, yeah. faith is the substance of things hoped for, and the evidence of things yeah. not seen. And you talked about, you know, the anxiety, and how do we get rid of that anxiety, and the things that prayer does in terms of transferring energy. Sure. The anxious for nothing, right. but in everything about prayer and supplication. Take no thought for the morrow. And I can do it back and forth, but I'm non sentimental Christian, so... <laughs> Yeah, and then the other thing of trying to make sense of everything that happens, yeah. you know, judgment versus analysis right, and right, so right, forth. Right. And the, the whole thing of Romans 8, 28, of, you know, having that uh, attitude that all things do work together, forgetting so forth. So, I, you know, I guess because of my framework and, and where I'm coming from, the things that you say evoke that kind of response sure. that have consistency. Yeah, in another context, in another life, uh, I would have made that speech. <laughs> no, I mean, I'm being serious. I mean, uh, all the years as a parish priest, one of the things I was most interested in was how, how Scripture could inform us uh, as a, and, and bring us to a healthy attitude, you know, rather than, than uh, being something that limits us and, and shames us and um, makes us fearful. Yes, please. Thank you for that. Uh, I agree. Yeah. Look that we have been before and that we're bringing what has gone on before in our lives. Yes. That's called the collective unconscious. The question was, you feel we've lived before and we're bringing forth in our life the experiences from that. Incarnation as a concept, um, reincarnation as a concept would be very close to what Jung talks about as the collective unconscious. He didn't believe that we you know, are, are in the same personality as a Roman soldier or, uh, you know, in, in Marie Antoinette's court or something. He believes that all the experiences that have ever been had are in us, and that's what that, that sense of knowing we've come from something is in us, and that we have the residue of that experience. So that reincarnation as a concept, from a psychological viewpoint, is what he called the collective unconscious. Yes, please. Well, then, is that evolving? Yes. Is it, is it changing? Yes. 
Uh-huh. Yeah, imperceptibly, obviously. And uh, the thing that the egocentricity of each of us, you know, is not being able to get a bigger picture, but in the bigger picture, the collective is evolving, but it's almost imperceptible mm-hmm. when we're in the middle of it. Uh, so, you know, Jung wrote a uh, volume in the collective works called Ion, which is the same word for eon, looking at how how things have changed uh, in the bigger picture of things. So yes, we're hopeful. Yes. Now speaking of control and the lack of control, yeah. obviously everybody I think would admit that we don't control yeah. everything. Yeah. Again, blindsided all the time. Yeah. But then there are people who might know <laughs> who say, Well, we'll just float through life. God will take care. Yeah. Or, you know, whatever you believe in, you know. Right. We'll take we'll take we'll take care. Yeah. Uh, and uh what do you think of that attitude? Oh, I think it's uh, supercilious. Yes. <laughs> the, the story about the man who uh, got tired of the vacant lot that was overgrown and had all kinds of junk, so he took the junk off, plowed it, and then planted the most beautiful vegetable garden there. And a, a pious neighbor came by and said, My God has given you such a wonderful garden. He said, eh, You should have seen it when he was working it alone. <laughs> God helps those who help themselves. I mean, I, 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 I think this idea of turning our life over to Christ or turning our life over to God or whatever else is an abdication of the radical responsibility of living our own true lives. Mm-hmm. And I think we have to be responsible for our own lives. And, and, and I think it's another form of ego defense to that, that kind of naive or immature viewpoint. Or defense for your own faith. Yes. I, I, you know, I grew up in a time where Pietistic language was, um, you know, my grandmother and my aunts and uncles and people use that pietistic language. And being a parish priest for 30 years, I've heard a lot of pietistic language. And I kind of like it, actually. It doesn't bother me. I understand it. Uh, when somebody, you know, says, God told me or God led me or God whatever. I mean, I, I, that's a language of pietism. And it has, the, the origin of that is to keep us from being inflated. I mean, that I didn't do that, or I, you know, I didn't, because hubris is what the gods could not abide. And so the idea is that God led me, or God did this, or God willing, I mean, I still say that, I'll see you next week, God willing. The reason those things, that, that language of pietism came in was to, so that we wouldn't become inflated. That's what knock on wood's about. Now, the tradition was that you knock on the wood of the cross, that's what knock on wood means. In, in, so that we would be reminded that we were not gods, we were human beings. So that I say, you know, I've been sick in a year. Whoa, you know, that's inflated, and so we knock on wood to deflate. So the very idea that God led me, or God called me, or God told me, or whatever, that's a language of pietism. I'm very comfortable with it. No, I'm not, not comfortable with very much he says. <laughs> Because he's usually uh, God leading him to tell me how to live my life. I'll, I'll take responsibility for my own life. Thank you. So I just mean this. A lot of the language of piety is just that. It, it's it's 
really a kind of a traditional way of giving credit so we don't become ego inflated. But also it can be a very naive and I think uh, inappropriate and unhealthy way to live your life. Yes. Do you feel that the collective unconscious or consciousness, the unconscious, is evolving sufficiently rapidly, maybe I'd say, for the planet to survive? <laughs> well, can anybody hear the question? Yeah, I know. Well, once again, I'm hopeful. I'm very hopeful. Thank you. Yeah. Well, I think the plants will survive. I'm not too sure about that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yes. You could blow it to Right. Even it might not survive. Right. Well. But I'm glad you're hopeful. I'm hopeful. I'm very, I am very hopeful. And I don't say that with any glibness. I mean, the hope, the word hope, Theologically, is not wishful thinking. It is a conviction based on experience. Mm -hmm. Our biblical tradition tells us that um, in that wonderful symbolic story of uh, the flood, they got a place to bow in the sky to say, I'll never do this again. Now, that, and that I'm not superstitious enough to uh, see that any other way than a part of the collective unconscious saying to us that we can be hopeful. That there's a part of us that knows that that we're moving toward a, a positive end rather than a, a negative one. I choose to believe that's part of my faith. Uh, between now and then, it may get pretty rough. As I am fond of saying, I believe that everything's going to be okay. I do not believe it will be all right. That sounds like a profound place to stop. <laughs>